Open our ears, open our eyes, help us to see what you have for us this morning. Help us to be doers of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come on. Am I on? Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Good stuff. I had a great uh, sunscreen spritzer joke uh, queued up for what we were going to do for next week. But then it occurred to me, this is our last week outside. So no need for sunscreen spritzers uh, next week. We're going to crank it down to 64 inside, and uh, it will be the height of success for me. It'll be great. Uh, we'll be uh, inside next week, same time, a uh, little bit different place. Um, if you are uncomfortable coming in, just um, want to encourage you, we do have the balcony space that is available and um, generally underused or unused most Sundays, so there's good space that you can uh, maintain. I would tell you to come a little bit late to church and just slip up to the balcony, but everyone at our church comes late to church, so your best bet is to come early for church and slip up to the balcony, and then no one will see you or talk to you, and you can uh, hang out up there for the service. I will say, though, uh, COVID has upped the hat game in our church significantly. I've always wanted to pass or one of the churches where you didn't know if we were going to the racetrack or coming to church on Sunday morning, and you guys have upped your game tremendously. So feel free to wear those next week as we go inside. You can uh, keep them going. Josh has already pointed to a great trick for success this morning, the worship guide as a fan. And you can just, if there is a good point made in today's sermon, just fan faster. That will be an encouragement to me that it landed because I can't hear you. I, um, when I first started preaching, would go do uh, like youth events, denials, and I've talked to like um, 12 middle schoolers at 1 a.m. at an overnight lock-in with youth, and I don't think it's as awkward as this morning's preaching event. So um, I, uh, I, I, I don't know, I can't see many of you, I don't know, so I'm just going to trust that God's Spirit will use His Word today to do um, something beyond what I can see or appreciate. We're in Luke 5. Uh, that's going to be our text this morning, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open there, Luke 5, we're going to be uh, reading 1 through 16, two major headers there in most of your English Bibles. Uh, we'll look at the call of the first disciples and then this story of a leper being cleansed, Luke 5, 1 through 16. I'm not exactly sure um, when it started, but at least as my mind processes about a decade ago, it became really common to hear people around the church um, use the phrase gospel-centered in describing what the church was to be about or what the church was doing. In fact, it became really common just to tag gospel onto pretty much anything um, as a, an encouragement. I think it was a helpful encouragement to, to challenge us to return to the church, the priority of the church, not being about building buildings or programs or uh, even the fellowship of the people of God, but we're really gathered around the gospel. We're centered around the gospel, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus um, centers us. A concern I have, perhaps, about uh, the term is it does move us a bit away from what I think the term is, is meant to uh, indicate, which is um, the church is actually not, not so much gospel-centered, but Jesus-centered. When we say gospel-centered, we're actually saying something about a person. We're not speaking about um, stale truths or intellectual assent to something, but we're talking about uh, Jesus. We're talking about being centered around 
the person and work of Jesus. To be Jesus-centered means that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shapes everything that I do in and through my life, including the way I engage with the church community. Or said another way, to be Jesus-centered means Jesus has more voice, more authority than anything else. My uh, experiences, my fears, my concerns, they're all shaped and refined by Jesus. Now, it doesn't seem that people in Jesus' day would have used that term, gospel-centered or Jesus-centered. In fact, it seems kind of awkward to hear the disciples speak of being Jesus-centered. But it does seem, as we read the New Testament, that people talked about them that way. Think about um, Acts 4. Uh, the early apostles uh, freed from uh, persecution. They've been suffering. And the mark that's indicated about them in, in Acts 4, Luke indicates, uh, that people around them noticed that they'd been with Jesus. They, they were the kind of people that were associated with Jesus. They were Jesus-centered without the term. Or think forward to Acts 11, we have the uh, church at Antioch, and there uh, we're told that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christians there. I mean, think about the term, of the party of Christ, associated with Christ, marked by Christ. The very name Christian implies Jesus-centeredness, or said more colloquially, they're they're Jesus-y. They just kind of drip Jesus. This is the mark of the people of God throughout the story of Scripture. They've been with Jesus, they follow Jesus, and as such, they act like Jesus. I think this is a good lens through which to read uh, the opening two scenes in Luke chapter 5. We're given a glimpse at a couple of Jesus-y people, Jesus-centered people. And what Luke's going to do for us is veer in and out of the works of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Right now, we're in snapshots considering the the works of Jesus. What's he doing? And we're going to get a glimpse of what what is the the marks of, indications of, people who are Jesus-centered or Jesus-y. And because we know that all scripture is given for our instruction, our conviction, our correction, our training in righteousness, these Jesus-y people hold up a mirror to us to help us ask the question, am I that way? Is that true of me? I have never preached with a puppy dog running through the crowd. This, I told you it was going to go down the history books. I've had a lot of moments, but a puppy dog running through the crowd is a moment I will remember for a long time. Um, Luke 5 1 through 16. If you can focus today, God's spirit is active at work in your heart. And if I can preach today, such is the same for me, I hope. Uh, Luke 5, let's read the text together. As the crowd, thank you, Emily. This is like a congregational membership. Uh, you, you guys, you're going to remember these moments. Somebody take a picture of that. We want to capture it on the wall of the church. That's great. All right, so Luke 5, verse 1. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by the lake and he saw two boats at the edge of the lake and the fishermen had left them and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon and he asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and he was teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, uh, I'll let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and the nets began to tear. 
So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said to him, go away from me for I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon, uh, Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. And they brought their boats to the land, and they left everything, and they followed him. And while he was in one of the towns, a man who was, was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, he fell face down, he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then he ordered him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Verse 15, but the news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and be healed of their sickness. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places there and he prayed. So when I see two stories packaged together like this, uh, a question that I ask is why are, why are they aligned this way? Luke is organizing these snapshots, not necessarily telling them chronologically, but packaging them together for us to help us get a glimpse of the argument that he's making. He's packaging Jesus' life to show his readers, including us, that Jesus is God, that he is who he says he is. And so we've got these little vignettes here of people that encounter Jesus. And these two are presented side by side for us. And I think they give us an indication. I want to present four fairly simple marks of Jesus-centered people. And by simple, I mean um, they're not astounding in their intellectual insight, but they're complex and life-altering should we apply them. What are the marks of Jesus-centered people? And I think we see these four marks in both of these stories. Mark 1. Jesus-centered people are hyper-aware of their deep need for Jesus. Hyper-aware of their deep need for Jesus. The first story of the fisherman, this is my jam. I'll be honest with you, when I read some of the stories in the Bible, like farmers, so in there, I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I don't farm, never done it. I mean, we got a raised bed in the backyard, but that's, that's about it. I know how to grow some okra there. But fishing, I get it. This is a story that makes sense to me. And there are four reasons that this story is absolutely infuriating as a fisherman. Jesus comes to them, tells them to go fish, and they catch a whole bunch of fish. I mean, it's a simple story. But four reasons the story is infuriating. First, they are fishermen. They know what they are doing, and they know how to do it. Fishermen, me, don't like to be told how to fish much less for somebody to tell me how to fish in my honey hole, right? Don't come and tell me how to fish in water that I know how to fish. Secondly, Jesus isn't a fisherman, at least as far as we know. You can Jesus juke that and say he's fishing for men, but on the concrete level, Jesus isn't a fisherman. And I'm open to advice from a fishing guide, but I don't want a novice telling me how to catch fish. Thirdly, they haven't caught anything. Now, this isn't stunning. It's an unpredictable activity. Fishing wouldn't be fun if you caught something every time. You're going to have bad days. But once I've given up, I'm not super interested in somebody telling me to re-engage in the process. And lastly, they're done. They're washing their nets. You don't do that unless you're packing it in. This is it. The day's over. 
we're, we're walking in, we're done. And so here, this non-fisherman comes and tells fishermen who haven't caught anything, who are at the point of done, to go catch some fish, and they do. And so when they catch, it's real clear to them that it's Jesus that has provided this catch. This is the point of this episode. This would not have happened if it weren't for Jesus. Now, in the second story, the leper, the need is more obvious. Luke is a doctor, and he tells us what about this leper. He's covered in leprosy. This isn't something that's just beginning, that's just developing. The need is literally written all over him. Exposed sores. And he is aware, he says in his statement, you can make me clean. Only Jesus can heal, and this man knows it. So in both stories, we see Jesus-centered people who are hyper-aware of their deep need. Whatever the outcome is doesn't happen if Jesus doesn't intervene. So for us then, the foundation for Jesus-centeredness is real, humble, daily, active acknowledgement that I need Jesus. Real, daily, active, humble acknowledgement that I need Jesus. This is super tough to commend to a group of American adults. Dependence isn't our jam. We don't enjoy flexing the muscle of dependence. And here's a place worth pressing us all. This dependence must go beyond, I need Jesus to forgive my sins and get me to heaven. But it's got to be the kind of dependence that says, I need Jesus for peace and hope and joy and life and marriage and parenting and work. So the mirror then, are you hyper aware of your deep need for Jesus? Will you wake up with that hyper-awareness on Monday morning? Secondly, they're all struck at the glory of Jesus. All struck at the glory of Jesus. Both the fisherman and the leper demonstrate their all-struckness, all that's not a word, but we'll make it up, uh, by their physical posture. What do they do? They fall on their face. One after the miracle and the other one before it. And if you're familiar with the story of scripture, you know this is a fairly common response to God throughout the Bible. People see God, they see his glory, and they fall. This is the point that Luke is making in the story. The, the point isn't so much the, the great catch or the healing of leprosy, but the point is Jesus is God. He has power over the animal kingdom. He has power over disease. We'll see it in other stories like the calming of the storm. People are going to ask, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is a natural question. Who is this man that can tell fishermen how to catch fish and they catch him? Who is this man that can heal a leper? But as miraculous as these acts are, they're not the end in and of themselves. They're pointing us to something. And that something is that Jesus is God. So Jesus-centered people then are awestruck, stunned by the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of his power, the reality of his might, the reality of his glory continues to haunt them with an awestruck wonder. Mirror question, does it you? Or have you gotten used to Jesus? Jesus-centered people continue to live with awe at the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. This is the confession we make at our baptism. 
and it's the ongoing posture of our heart. We have to return time and time again to being floored at the fact that God loved sinners and sent Jesus to save them. And even more, God loved you and sent Jesus to save you. What's a bigger deal? That Jesus could help some dudes catch a bunch of fish and heal a sick leper, or that he could forgive your sins and give you his spirit? As we're going to see in the text next week, the forgiveness of sins is a far bigger deal. Does that still stun you? Does gazing at Jesus cause you to live with this sense of awestruck wonder? Is this what you think when you read your Bible or meet with God in prayer? I'm communing with the living God. How do you cultivate that? Well, you just come back to time and time again looking at Jesus. It's why we sing the way we sing. It's why we pray the way we pray. It's why what we do in small groups is the way we do them. It's why we try to teach the Bible about Jesus. Because it's not like we're going to get to Christianity 3.0. Christianity is just coming back over and over again to Jesus. It's like if you've ever seen something um, uh, that, that really captures your awe. The, the illustration this week that comes to mind is the Northern Lights. Saw them once um, when I was in Iceland uh, on, on a trip. And it's like, once you see something that's fascinating like that, how do you grow into that? You just try to come back and see it again. Go to the Grand Canyon, and what do you do? You just kind of get at different look-off points and gaze at it. And it's like, every time I look at it, it astounds me even more. Does Jesus do that for you? The third thing that we see of Jesus-y people in these, in these stories is that they're committed to the mission of Jesus. So they're hyper aware of their need for Jesus. They're awestruck at the glory of Jesus. Thirdly, they're committed to the mission of Jesus. Notice the statement. This is explicit in the story of the fishermen. What does Jesus tell them will happen? He says, uh, in, other, in other translations and in other scenes uh, we'll see in just a minute with the, the call of the first disciples, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But notice this in Luke 5. It's actually a statement of fact. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. This is what you're going to do. This is what association with me is going to produce in you. And this makes sense. This is what Jesus does. In fact, it's what he's currently doing in their life. He's fishing for people. He's pursuing people. So when he says, hey, come follow me, the outcome is going to be you're going to be doing the things that, that I'm doing. And interestingly, and I think this is worth considering, Think about the things that he could have said there. Think about the things that could have gone in that blank. Follow me and I'll make you a wise prophet. Follow me and I'll make you a healer. Follow me and I'll make you a rabbi. This isn't what he says. The most important thing that would mark people who follow Jesus would be that they fish for people, that they're involved in this activity. So an aspiring athlete or musician is going to find someone to model and emulate their habits after. What would it look like for those modeling their lives after Jesus? They're, they're going to be the kind of people who fish for other people. This is fundamentally going to define them. In the second story, we get a little bit of a different sense because Jesus says seemingly the opposite. Don't tell anybody about this healing. 
seems to not make sense unless you consider the context. It's a big deal what Jesus has done to this leper. So he says, do what's required by the law, but don't attract undue attention to yourself at this point. Or else there's going to be so many people getting in the Jesus heal me line that I'm not going to be able to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel. It's not yet time for that level of attention. But what does Luke record in Luke 5 at the end of that story in verse 15? News about him spreads even more. This makes sense, right? How do you tell a leper who's just been healed, don't tell anybody? Like, don't I mean, everybody who knows the leper that was just healed is going to know something has changed about this individual. It's, it's going to be written all over him. Again, literally. Dude couldn't help but share. His life clearly testifies to the change. He was once the busted leper, and now he's healed. So in both instances, this testimony is going to spread to other people. Now, in my experience in pastoring American churches for the last two decades, this mark is the breaking point for far too many in the American church. We're really good with Jesus-centeredness being defined by humble need. We're really good at defining Jesus-centeredness by awestruck wonder. But don't get in my business of asking me to actually invest my life in some other people. Don't call me to activity in fishing for people. I fear that far too many in the church stop at Mark 2. Their lives are individual, private, and yes, they understand their need. Yes, they appreciate the glory of Christ, but that doesn't bubble over into the lives they live in investing with other people. Here's a helpful way to consider this mark as a mirror for your own life. If you said to someone else, hey, come follow me and I will make you blank, what would go in that blank? Hey, come follow me, watch the way I follow Jesus, and I will make you intellectually curious, a good family man, responsible in my work, stewarding my resources, church attendee, small group attendee. Would it be a natural byproduct of people following you that they would live on mission? Lastly, they sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. They sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. There are a couple of places in this story that this sacrifice is seen. The first is obvious. At the end of the scene with the fishermen, what do they do? They leave their boats, their nets, and they follow him. To do what? At this point in the story, honestly, who knows? What does that even mean you're going to fish for people? We don't have lengthy exhortation about what's built into that. These fishermen, for, for all, this is first, seconds, or thirds interactions with Jesus. And here, this individual does something that so astounds them that he is God, that they would be willing to sacrifice everything in order to follow him. They're sacrificing family. They're sacrificing livelihood. They're sacrificing familiarity. Who does this remind you of? It reminds me of the call of Abram in Genesis 12. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. 
Leave your country and your kindred and your relatives and go, and I'm going to make something of you. I think that's the right association because in that call of Abraham, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. In this call, Jesus is gathering around him 12 new disciples who will reconstitute the people of God. Leave everything. Follow me, even into unknownness and uncertainty. But I think there's a hidden gem in this text in verse 5. In the, the scene where we have this interaction between Simon uh, talking to Jesus about the catch, verse 5 again, Master Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and we've caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. I think if you summarize this, these 16 verses, that phrase, but if you say so, might be a good thesis over the entire text. They're saying, we've been fishing, we don't get it. I, honestly, I've spent my day, I don't want to go back out there. Even if we catch, it's going to be embarrassing because we couldn't catch without you. But, but if you say so, they're sacrificing time, energy, pride to get back on the water and act on Jesus' words, and he provides. He provides such that the boats begin to sink. I wonder if this scene's going to play in Peter's mind when it's not a boat, but it's him on the water in short order. They sacrifice and they trust because he said so. So the mirror of the text to you then is, is there anything about your life that is because he said so? That makes no sense that demonstrates exuberant sacrifice, that's countercultural or counterintuitive. Our hearts, the human heart, tends to orient itself to the places that we are sacrificing. I'm saving up for a remodel of my home or a vacation or to buy tickets to this event, so I'm going to think about it because I'm sacrificing for it. And in the same way, if we want to be Jesus-centered people, there have to be ongoing places in our Monday schedule where Jesus crowds our agenda. Where he, and track with the tone I'm trying to use, where he gets in our way. There are things that we would otherwise be doing, but because our lives are oriented around Jesus, we're willing to give those up and trust simply because he says so. So on a hot Sunday morning, bacon in the parking lot, four mirrors to your own life. Hyper aware of your need for Jesus, awestruck at the glory of Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus, and then sacrificing all to follow Jesus. Using those lenses, would people say, you've been with Jesus? Let's contemplate that question for 60 seconds, and then Walker's going to come and lead us to sing and focus our attention on Jesus. So just in the stillness, quietness, if you would pray and reflect how the word and the spirit brings conviction from the text this morning, and then we'll stand and sing together.
Our Father, would you meet with us now as we um, sing? Do you help us to, to think on Jesus, to consider uh, our lives as Jesus-centered people? And would you instill in us um, these defining marks and these characteristics? We recognize for that to happen would be sheer grace from you. And so we ask that you would do it by your Spirit's power. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together?